Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Malawi is preparing for a competitive presidential election. Will we see another leadership change in sub-Saharan Africa? Jumia, an e-commerce company, had a blockbuster IPO listing, followed by a sharp decline. What does it mean for the Africa tech sector? Plus, we have a special mashup episode with some of our favorite podcasts, Ufuhamo Africa, On Africa, and the Africa Tech Roundup. What is the potential of this medium in a region where internet penetration is low and radio is still king? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Malawi is headed towards general elections on 21 May. This may be the most competitive election remaining in the 2019 season. Are we on the precipice of another leadership transition, Africa's 27th since 2015? Joining me to discuss this too-close-to-call election is Kim Dion, an assistant professor at UC Riverside and co-host of Ufuama Africa, Rachel Beattie Riedel, an associate professor at Northwestern University and also co-host of Ufuama Africa, Travis Atkins, who is an adjunct professor at Georgetown's African Studies and Security Studies and the host of On Africa, and calling all the way from South Africa, Andili Masuku, who is an entrepreneur and the host of the African Tech Roundup. Kim, can you break this down for us? Why is this important? Who's running? What should we be worried about watching for? Well, it's an important election because it's going to be really competitive. So Peter Mutarika is the president of Malawi, and he's uh, the incumbent, likely favored to win. He's running for his party, the Democratic Progressive Party, DPP. His current vice president, Salas Chalima, has left the party and is running against him under a new party banner, the United Transformational Movement. So we have this new party emerging with this essentially a political outsider, right? He, um, Silas Chalima was a businessman before he went into politics. He never held public office before becoming the vice president for the DPP in um, the most recent election. Um, And he's running against what he's calling a corrupt government and a corrupt party. Now, he's not the only challenger, right? So uh, the the longtime opposition challenger in this race is Lazarus Chakwera, who's the flag bearer for the Malawi Congress Party, the MCP, which many people may remember as the long ruling party under uh, one party rule under Hastings Kamuzubanda from 1964 to 1994. There were 12 people who filed papers to run for president, and there's seven people still running in the race today. But it's really going to be a race between these three. I'm kind of obsessed with Lazarus Chequera, and I'll, I'll tell you why. He's the head of the former ruling party, uh, head of the opposition, a guy from the religious side, uh, and there's a growing trend of religious leaders entering politics. I don't think there's been a former ruling party that's been out 20 years and has a like legitimate chance of coming back to power. And if he wins, and it's a big if, I think there's a lot of work that we could be doing and thinking about the resilience of, of political parties. Rachel, what is what do you think about this? To be out for that amount of time and then to have this real chance, I think, um, speaks to a number of possible mechanisms, right, that are at work. It could be, right, the the networks, the personal charisma, right, the personalist um, aspect of it. It can also be the material inducements. To what extent did the party allow for that kind of accumulation and 
be able to maintain it over 20 years in the wilderness in opposition. That's a long time. So this is absolutely an outlier in terms of a kind of successor party coming back. Um, and so, you know, is it the ideology, kind of the brand name that carries? Um, and, and I think there are, you know, some, some aspects of, of those all in combination. We're going to be honest and say that Malawi doesn't get a lot of attention here in, in circles in Washington, D.C., but how does the Southern African community see this? Uh, and Dili, are people talking about Malawi? Well, look, people, people in my circles um, are either preoccupied with South Africa's own elections mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, you know, quite a few are still focused on helping Malawi, Mozambique and Zimbabwe recover from Cyclone Idai. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I'd be I'd be lying if I said it was as topical as I as it could or should be uh, in this part of the world or any part of the world, frankly. Uh, more so here, given how close we are. But uh, personally, I, I I see the development around um, Lazarus Chakwera as being part of a disturbing trend towards the normalization of the merging of church and state, oh, which is becoming. Um, an, an issue, and I think it's 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 um, it, even as a sort of conservative conservative Christian myself, um, I do worry about the uh, the trend and its uh, and its potential to to usher in some disturbing uh, trampling of rights to freedom of worship and perhaps the legislation of morality and issues of that nature. In a future episode, we're going to have to talk about religious leaders transitioning into political leaders. And we could talk about Nigerians, Vice President Osimbajo, who has a very similar sort of profile as well, and potentially could be a candidate in 2023. Kim is here. She's a Malawi expert. Her book, Doomed Interventions, The Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa, is phenomenal. I just quickly read it just before she got here, and I'm very happy I did. It's actually going to improve some work I'm doing on on a couple issues. So one, I want to make sure people know that if you want some really interesting analysis and understanding about sort of global priorities and then specifically to Malawi, you should read her book. But second, I found on Twitter that the UK has done this exercise in which they did a simulation on how the Malawians and partners would respond to the elections. And I'm curious to come back, you know, in a couple weeks and see whether or not this really did improve the quality of the poll or at least the response if things go wrong. Kim, let me give you the final word on Malawi. So I think... I think that exercise of practicing is, was a really good idea. Um, I don't know how much it would, you know, pan out in in a real setting, but I think just having done it in the past, I mean, just like it's like anything in life, right? Practice is always good. Right. Um, but one concern that I have about the elections um, is that the president recently he was making accusations about the potential for the election to be rigged, right? Mm. And that the, in particular, that the mobile phone networks would be involved, right? That the two major mobile phone providers are Airtel and TNM Malawi. And it turns out that his former vice president, Salish Chalima, used to be the president of Airtel in Malawi. And um, it's for those reasons and for for the reasons of, of us seeing other leaders in other neighboring countries turning off social media, right. turning off access to mobile networks. Um, it's it's for that reason that I'm concerned that there may be some sort of manipulation that could happen, right? The president could make a claim that he needs to turn off the networks because he's trying to protect the polls from rigging. And it's when those networks are turned off that 
I, I'm just wondering how will the parallel vote tabulation happen, right? That's a really because good point. so for those of you who don't know, parallel vote tabulation is is like a quick count. It's where they send a random, uh, they send a, a group of trained observers to a randomly selected rep, nationally representative set of polling stations to try to get um, kind of the pulse of what the national vote count would be. And those observers send that information back using SMS messages. And if the network is down, they're not able to do that. And the the Malawi Electoral Commission only has seven days to count the votes. And so if mobile networks are down, it, it, it just raises questions about the veracity of, of the outcome. Well, that's a really good point. And we'll, we'll be watching them as the elections unfold. I want to pivot to the Jumia IPO. The uniqueness of Africa is for the sellers. It's very hard to distribute their products. In Africa, there's very little retail. And the solution is to go online and go on Jumia. Jumia is an e-commerce site that had this huge opening on the New York Stock Exchange. There sparked all of this buzz about the African tech scene. There's also been a lot of pushback on Jumia and you know whether it does represent Africa. So, in delay. Can you help us separate fact from fiction a little here? Like, what does this you know public offering really mean? Let me give you a balanced scorecard here. Firstly, there's this giant spotlight on Africa's startup ecosystem in a way that you know is somewhat unprecedented. That's a fact. So from that standpoint, capitalism is winning um, <laughs> in a big way. Uh, there clearly seems to be. A, a, an insatiable appetite in in places like the U.S. for profit taking via what I consider PR engineered big ticket quote unquote investment opportunities, um, and I did say on my show, uh, you know, that I'm old school, so I'm not a huge fan of speculation, particularly speculation that doesn't adequately account for objective realities and actual business value in the. And the objective reality here is that Jumia is a hugely, hugely, hugely loss-making business. Um, people like me and others uh, believe there will be a bubble. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the global financial cycle does its thing. And at, at the point it bursts, all, all these sort of speculative valuations uh, applied to companies like Jumia and others uh, we'll tend we'll go out the window for the most part. If I lean into some of the you know some of the proponents for this notion that this is a, a, just a glorified pump and dump scheme, well, you have its largest shareholder MTN uh, holding thirty percent of that business, uh, you know, tipped to sort of you know sell out completely of that investment, uh, you know, at this very opportune time. That's part of what. Uh, you know, a lot of people have a problem with this idea that, you know, brand Africa is being dragged into what might be a very unhealthy sense of, you know, the creation of commercial value without actual business value being created along with it. And um, and and should a bu- bubble burst and the Titanic that is Jumia go down, the sort of rosy picture of, of the sort of African opportunity might very well go down with it. Kim, have you been thinking about this? 
I have been. I mean, there's a lot of I see a lot of parallels to other other ways Africa is engaged with by uh, the rest of the world. And I'm so annoyed by Jumia and what people are making of it because there's so many other amazing entrepreneurial ventures on the continent that deserve this kind of attention and aren't getting it just because of the power of networks, the way that's divided by race. And I, you know, I'm also just thinking like, when Jumia fails, everyone's going to say, you know, we tried that Africa IPO thing, but it didn't work. We've always understood living here and doing business here that everything that's worth doing takes time. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like there are these superlative notions around growth and capturing value that are hugely popular in places that frankly don't have the value and I suppose have to trade on the basis of of stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they project these narratives. So the, the fact that, you know, they, they intentionally spun this tale um, tells you something a, a little bit about, you know, just how, one, well stories work yeah. in terms of like putting people in a position to win in, in, in cold, hard capitalist terms, but also how willing people seem to be to to take short wins because in the interim, I mean, we all know who's winning from things like this. Um, and and all the sort of upside risk, it, it, you know, basically, I mean, we, we as Africa, like, bear the brunt of it. So is this that um, the folks from Jumia are inauthentically claiming to be African or that outsiders are kind of trying to draw this out as a diamond from the African rough, right? Because there's also the desire uh, and the pattern from the West and other places in the world to do that. Or is it Jumia playing into this desire for external powers and thinkers and leaders um, to pull out these kinds of diamonds from the rough of Africa? I think there've been a lot of really smart individuals paid, uh, perhaps corporations as well, to to figure out an angle that would appeal to uh, to certain targeted investors who might be it's on some level ready and poised to give Africa a chance, but needed something that sounds like you know sound, something that sounds like perhaps something they've they, they've invested in before, run by people they can trust. Former McKinsey Oaks, you know, who happened to come out of uh, you know come out of France, and yes, they did the right thing. They brought some some locals to the table as founders, quote unquote, early on. And and of course, it's an Africa-focused business. It's in 19 countries. 30% of it is owned by one of the largest, sort of most successful telcos on the continent. Yes, we are African, except you're not in many respects, and you know it. And 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 many of the interviews that have been, you know, m- many of the interviews that the the founders of this business have ha- have have sort of given since the event betray the very fact that you know that that. They, they know where the holes are in the story, but they know that the, the story is at least strong enough to hold its own in a place like the U.S. where the market is can't wait to speculate on something of this nature. Well, I think we should keep talking about Jamia, and I think, Indeely, the risk that it holds for other tech startups. This is a really special episode, and it's bringing together some of our favorite podcasts. And we wanted to talk about this art form, its evolution, and what that means for African audiences, for American audiences. And so this segment's going to play on all of our, our platforms, but you know, you'll know, you get a little of the Into Africa, you'll get a little of the Ufham Africa, you'll get a little of tech 
uh, Roundup, you get On Africa. So you're getting four episodes for the price of one. <laughs> you may be getting one episode for the price of four. four. I'm not sure. <laughs> but you know, I hope that uh, our audiences, our shared audiences, will discover uh, each other's shows through this mashup. So I am not the host anymore. We're all sort of sharing MC responsibilities. So maybe, Kim, can I can I hand it off to you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm actually really curious how everyone came to launch their podcast. So for me, it started because, um, you know, I'm a product of public investment in education and I worked at an institution where you had to pay $70,000 a year to learn what I had to say about African politics. And I just felt that that was entirely unfair. And I didn't want to only be teaching a certain, you know, small handful of students every year uh, who paid this incredible price to learn. And I thought, you know, if I did something like a podcast, something that someone could listen to on a treadmill, you know, um, or on their walk to work or commute to work, um, you know, I might reach a different group of people. Rachel, you know, I mean, am I wrong in saying that you helped, you know, keep this amazing podcast alive a little bit, reinvigorating it? Oh, yeah. She definitely resuscitated it. (laughs) Well, I've always been such a fan of Kim's work and so appreciative of it. And so, as I was coming in to direct our program of African studies at Northwestern University, I really wanted to have an opportunity to think about the ways of extending um, what we create here you know, in these walls, the conversations that we have, and thinking about how we can reach broader audiences, both in terms of input and in terms of learning. So what I love about the podcast, it gives us an opportunity to curate a set of questions that we want to talk to other experts about and learn ourselves. And I think that that, you know, creates a set of next generation questions. So I'm so thankful to be a part of, of all of it. We're thankful that you guys, uh, you know, got the band back together mm-hmm. or however you want to say it. <laughs> Travis? Uh, yeah, I think for me, um, there was a series of events that I think led to kind of on Africa taking uh, form in the shape of a podcast. I, the first was around 2017, I actually faced a, a personal health challenge uh, which put both my life and my actual, my literal voice uh, at risk. Coming out of that, you know, with my life, with my voice, uh, got me to thinking a lot more about voice. Mm. Um, and especially being in kind of the Washington policy circle uh, around Africa and, and really global circles where you don't hear the voices uh, of the people from the continent. Mm-hmm. You don't see featured as many women as we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't see featured people from the historic African diaspora as mm-hmm. well as the contemporary African diaspora. And really, so there was a frustration there, right, of seeing panel after panel of essentially elderly white men mm-hmm. talking about Nigeria mm-hmm. and the audience is filled with people from Nigeria. And then I think the last thing I would say is I saw many formats that had kind of um, the news run and covering the whole continent. And I love those because I think it draws people in in short spurts of time and gives them a maximum amount of information. Uh, but I also thought about the people who wanted to dig deeper mm-hmm. and do a dive that was more contextual. Um, and so the lens that we try to create is with every episode, whenever you see this issue pop up in the news again, we want this episode to give you as deep of a historical context for following that issue as it progresses. What about you, John? Well, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Kim was a big part of why I started a podcast. Oh. 
our mutual mm-hmm. friend Laura put that you uh, had a podcast. And at first I was like, yes, I've been waiting for this. And then, of course, my second thought was, but I want to do that. <laughs> right? Why can't I do that? And I worked in the government. I worked in the intelligence community. That was There was zero chance that I was going to have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I came here to CSIS, that was one of the first things I wanted to do. You know, what I wanted to do is help our audience think through the various issues that were on the continent, both reactions to news, which I love, but also some of these deeper dive questions. And then think about what the policy options that might flow out of that. Mm-hmm. There's a show I love called Bombshell, which is three really smart women who are national security experts, and they do this thing called, what is something that you follow like a sport but isn't a sport? And that's, for me, African politics. Mm-hmm. So whether we're you know, uh, you know, in an office, at the dinner table, at a bar, that's what I want to do. And so I'm hoping that our show you know, gives that sort of energy. And Dealey, what about you? So when I first started podcasting, I was um, uh, I just come off a, a fairly successful run in television here in South Africa, working in front of the camera and behind the scenes. I was kind of feeling great about myself as a sort of producer and uh, TV man and um, a comedy of sort of political sort of corporate errors led to the show being pulled. And so, yeah, it was a somewhat a humbling experience um, that led to me uh, trying to figure out what would come next for my broadcasting career. And so podcasting, I kind of fell into um, as an experiment, as really a, an accessory to this, quote, you know, sort of high-flying broadcasting career I'd come I'm kind of off of. And the African Tech Roundup really was one in three sort of podcast um, areas that I, you know, I sort of approached and you know, I put my head together with a, a true sort of tech head and I brought the the broadcasting chops. And within a year, we realized that we, we hadn't built what we thought we were building, which was a sort of for us, by us community of, of Africans, by Africans, for Africans. What we'd actually built was a window into our ecosystem for everyone who wasn't here. Now, granted, uh, we have a huge listenership on the continent, but two-thirds of our audience today is is everywhere, you know, is, is abroad. And and so, yeah, I mean, we kind of fell into that, um, into that, uh, in, into that predicament of, of be- basically becoming representative and then also having to face the sort of, again, humiliation of realizing just how exclusive a proposition podcasting remains on the continent itself. But I do espouse some of those, the, the, you know, some of the, the mores of journalism in as far as sort of trying to remain independent and, and, and fair, um, but, from, but, but totally, totally, totally wielding an agenda uh, for the benefit of the continent. Well, this is, I mean, this is, I think, what we're all, we all struggle with a little bit, and it's twofold. One is for Kim and Travis and Rachel and I, like, how do you talk about Africa when you're not an African? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in my case, in Rachel's case, and, and Kim's not part of the African diaspora. And then the question, ideally, that you raised is who listens to podcasts in Africa, right? Like, it's radio is still king, 27% internet penetration. Smartphones is about what I was reading this morning, about half and half between feature and smart. Who are our audiences, given this this platform's, this medium sort of limited reach? Um, you know, it was really important to me when I launched the podcast that I center it on African voices because I'm not African. Yeah. If you actually look, you know, at our analytics, when we feature people from the continent, we actually get very good ratings. Mm. So, I mean... 
I love all of my American friends who have been on the show. But when the coup happened in Zimbabwe, it just happened that I was also meeting George Kari Kwaivanane, who is a scholar of law and, uh, and the state in Zimbabwe. You know, he was able to lend insights that I don't think very many people in the world could have. And that was one of our best listened shows ever. We've been downloaded in about 30 African nations so far. Uh, the penetration is not as deep across the entire continent. But what I find is that that spike goes up if the topic is is on that country, mm-hmm. regardless sure. of right. who, regardless of who the guest is, right? But if you match it up where it's about a specific country and the guest happens to be from that country, mm-hmm. so for us, one of the first episodes that really exploded into the kind of thousands of downloads is when we had Tundu Lesu, mm-hmm. um, the opposition leader, member of parliament from Tanzania. And so many folks in Tanzania who supported him, who opposed him, Mm -hmm. who were curious about his emergence, um, tuned in to that episode. Um, But I think there's a responsibility on our part in terms of how we frame it. We had our China-Africa episode, and one of the things we wanted to do there is not say, what what are the Chinese boogeymen doing Mm -hmm. to the poor, infantile leaders of Africa, right? No. Why are African leaders choosing from their own foreign policy perspectives to engage China. We've never had an episode where we haven't had an African voice. And so that's critically important to us. But the other thing is, I'm an analyst and I'm a product, a US, former U.S. government analyst. I'm a product of that, of that world. And so one of the things I hope is that, one, I'm being upfront with that. Mm-hmm. And, if, and Africans can, can hear my biases. Mm-hmm. And I want to be as clear as possible about them. And just as Ndili schooled me a little bit on, on Jumia, like, I love that. That's the best part of the show when I get, you know, new insights from our guests and maybe I need to do a course correction. Rachel? Yeah, I think there's another kind of diversity that I've been really conscious of in terms of our Ufahamu Africa reach, and that is the linguistic diversity. Mm-hmm. And one of my goals has really been to think about how we can reach Francophone Africa, um, Lusophone Africa, right? And and to have a platform to let the podcast serve as a platform for exchange across the region. And Dile, we get to hear all these U.S. folk talk about Africa. What's your reaction? I think we need to become more brutally honest about the nature of our privilege. The fact that we're having this conversation in English, um, the fact that um, I have a sufficient level of education to articulate complex issues. Um, I have a sufficient, and speaking about myself personally, I have a sufficient sort of exposure to the world, to my own country first and to you know my own co- continent as well, and then to the rest of the world to provide me a global context for for everything that's happening. Podcasting represents what's easily, I think, the most exclusive media proposition to, to produce in, in on the continent right now. Um, if, if, if my objective is truly to include and truly to reach, you know, never mind the fact that it's also happening in English, never mind, you know, how much data costs and how much oh friction is involved right. in trying to listen. Despite all that, there's a pragmatic importance to the work someone like me is doing in influencing the earliest adopters of the technologies that allow us to in- to interact with the rest of the world in unprecedented ways. Now, granted, most of us on the continent who get this privilege are, are fairly affluent. Many of us aren't necessarily representative of, quote unquote, the average African and their, and their situation on the continent. And, and to some extent, you know, I'm 
hypercritical of folks like you guys who sit over there in your fancy offices with, you know, all those amazing grant funds, you know, and, and you're sort of, uh, you know, privileged background. He's mainly talking, talking about, about me, I content, think. Yeah. I was getting ready to <laughs> That's say. That's just me, right? He's certainly not talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, guys. I say that tongue-in-cheek right, because, right. again, perception perception sometimes is reality for some, you know? So Indeed. I say that tongue-in-cheek because I it's possible for me to get on the soapbox and, and just miss how much goodwill is in the room, you know? And how everyone's just trying to move the needle, you know? I mean, I think it's still important for us to to keep that in mind and not to lose sight of that. But I just uh, I thought it would be fun to kind of hear, you know, some of your what, what's your favorite episode of someone else's podcast? What's interesting, I've really just learned from Andale's comments about thinking about podcasting as an exclusive format and one of the most exclusive formats on the continent, because um, the way I've been approaching it has been like this is a really low barrier to entry kind of field in some ways. I mean, like I'm recording off my iPhone. It's so interesting to think about. And, and that's exactly where the value add of this exchange can lie, right? And thinking about how it can be both kind of low barrier and exclusive at the same time and how mm-hmm. those different positionalities create that. But to come back to the, to the question, um, so one of the episodes that I really, really loved, and Travis already mentioned that this was one of their um, highest um, uh, listenerships was the the episode on Tanzania. So I really learned a lot from that. Travis, what about you? Uh, I would say um, there there are several, but I would say um, from Into Africa, I really appreciated the episode on the Sudan uprisings. And I myself had actually done uh, a, a similar episode, but I really love to see how colleagues and peers mm. take a similar thing and, and kind of turn it in a different way mm-hmm. and how this space is so wonderfully, you know, collaborative rather than competitive. Mm-hmm. Travis, so that's funny because the one I was going to pick was your episode with Nisrin Elamine and Zachariah <laughs> Mompili on CDN because I love that episode. And Zachariah's been on all three of our shows. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, so yeah, so he needs to be on African Tech Roundup, <laughs> right, I think. Go. Bring it on, man. There Bring it on. <laughs> let's just throw let's just throw our audience a curveball, why not? <laughs> yeah. Uh maybe I'll say, uh Dilly, I I've been listening to your show because Rachel turned me on to it actually, but the episode that you did at the end of the year with Viola Llewellyn, like she's a force of nature. Like that yeah. was an incredible, it was a two part series and it was phenomenal. And I think I'm not a tech guy. I'd like to learn more about it. But what I love about your show is, I think, something that we're aspiring to do here at Into Africa, which the joy of the show. That is like a high compliment. Like if you if you sense some of the fun I'm having and 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 the love that, you know, I just can't hold back, then I mean, I'm winning. What I find fascinating about your approach is just so American. But I have to appreciate how how you guys have turned into an art you know, arti- articulating the nuances of politics in a way that other parts of the world really don't do. You bring a sort of level of, of newsworthiness that I would never have sort of scratched deep enough to, to find. I don't know how to explain it. You know, it's just mm. very American in a very good way. And then the one conversation you had on um, Fohamu was, uh, I remember, is one with uh, Munandulo about the Mozambican crisis. I found that really interesting, also just because of how he just reminds me of my uncles, like people I know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, But he's also just this 
um, learned man who 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 just cares about his country. Could I chime in just really quickly on that, Judd, and um, give some love to the Ufuamu family um, for the, uh, the recent episode that you just had with a scholar on Islam. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing because I haven't listened to that one yet. Because because Islam has such a, a place in the West, but to hear Islam and on a continent where fifty percent of people are Muslims, and to hear him give his perspective on the history and the context and the differences and the nuances is actually something that I was thinking of doing on the show. So I was so excited uh, to see the way you did it and who you chose to do it and how it played out. Ufama, obviously, I've been listening to the from the beginning. I may have been on an episode. <laughs> no one has to say it's their favorite, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, the two episodes that you've been doing on protests on Sudan, the mm-hmm. Khalid Madani one and then the one with Lisa Mueller, like it's really actually helped me as I've had to have conversations here in D.C. about protests. I won't mention Matt Page and Hillary, who are friends of mine, and were just rock star episodes as well. They were. And, you know, that's the thing. If you want to increase your listenership, have people on who focus on Nigeria. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Matthew Page. Uh, his his episode right before the Nigerian elections was huge. And then Travis, you mentioned already, but the China Africa one, I think for me was a such an incredible perspective on the issue. We've we've only kind of put our toes in the sh- in the water on on China and Africa, and I thought because it's so daunting, and I thought your guest did such a great job of a comprehensive issue that is such a political football here. I wanted to say in closing, thank you guys for this idea. I think it's wonderful that we've all, you know, found a passion and an interest in a similar project and decided to sit down and do this together. So yeah. it's fantastic it's to so be great. here with you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.